So if you can look at 20 minutes or half an hour as a time where you can be creative, you chip away at a project that way. If you love to draw and paint, like you can really do a beautiful drawing in 20 minutes. Don't you wish you could be more creative? If so, you are going to want to get to know Ellen Lupton. She is one of the most creative people I know. I'm Bon Q, the host of Design Lab. It's a brand new podcast where we're going to explore how to design our lives to be healthier. I'm a physician, educator, and researcher, and I explore how the worlds of design, art, science, and health intersect. And I seek out people like Ellen Lupton, and I try to learn something new, something that I can apply to my own life. We recorded this conversation with Ellen Lupton in July, and Ellen, she is a giant in the world of design. She directs the Graphic Design MFA program at the Maryland Institute College of Art, and she's also the senior curator at the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum in New York City. It's one of my favorite museums in the world. And Ellen is a prolific writer. She has written over 20 books on the design process. I have so many of her books. They have had a huge impact upon my life and career. Ellen is the recipient of the AIGA Gold Medal. It's like winning the Oscar for a designer. And last year, she was elected to be a member to the prestigious American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Founded in 1780, it's one of the oldest societies in America. It has Nobel Prize winners, influential leaders, and other brainiacs. In my conversation, Ellen and I talk about our new book, Health Design Thinking, What Everyday Design Means, and how each one of us can become more creative. What is um, your latest project that you've been working on? Well, I have two big projects. So as a curator at Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum in New York City, I am collaborating with Mass Design Group on an exhibition about redesigning healthcare. And this is very exciting. It's going to open in the spring of 2021 if the world you know, proceeds yeah. with some sanity. And it's about the impact of pandemics on design and how pandemics in history have prompted big innovations and changes in healthcare that then have a ripple effect much more broadly through society. So it's very exciting, very exciting project. So, so relevant. And for those of you who haven't been to Cooper Hewitt, it's the only a museum in the country dedicated solely to design. Is that right? Yeah, we're the nation's design museum. And we look at the history of design, the future of design. We create exhibitions, but also online resources, education programs, tools for teachers, tools for homeschooling, all that. Museums are much more than exhibition places. They really are educational institutions that create and disseminate knowledge. And you're working with Mass Design Group led by Michael Murphy, one of my favorite architecture groups out there. They've done so much work in Haiti and Rwanda on designing and creating these beautiful hospitals that also are very functional and decrease risks of transmission of infectious diseases. So huge fan of their work. And what's your other project that you're working on? 
Well, I have a project with you, actually. <laughs> so last year, we published a book together called Health Design Thinking, which came out around February of 2020, right before the pandemic really became recognized as everybody's problem. And so you and I are working on that, on doing a second edition that looks at some of the incredible creativity and innovation and problem solving and human-centered thinking that's going on now, just in the last few months. So that's very exciting. So how many books have you written? I was trying to figure that out. At, at least 30, right? I think it's closer to 20, but it really depends on how you define it. Some of my books I have edited with, you know, a lot of other people. Some I consider more, you know, my project, mm -hmm. uh, but around 20. Yeah. One of the first books I read of yours, Beautiful Users, Designing for People. This book, I think it came out... Uh, 2014. 2014. I read it in 2015. And... And that's when I was just starting to get into this intersection of design and healthcare. I was trying to learn about design and I stumbled upon this book and I thought, this is amazing. I, I thought it would make design very accessible to me. It wasn't this like lofty thing. And I thought, I wish there was like a book like this in, in healthcare. I had always been thinking I wanted to do a project about design and healthcare. And, and here were you talking about it and running a lab, a, a health design lab. So we were on a panel together. After the panel, how did that happen? We just well, said, hey, we should do a book together. <laughs> no, I stalked you. So like I was, I was really nervous to do the panel, not because of uh, the panel, but but of meeting you. And I think I had brought one of my books to get signed by you. And I pitched to you, I said, I said, you should write a book on design thinking for healthcare. And I didn't even try to include myself because I was very intimidated by you. Um, you know, you're like a famous author. I, I've never written a book. And, and then I think later on, you, we had email exchanges and you said, oh, we should write this book together. And I thought, that's a little crazy. That's like me, you know, doing an album with Drake or something. I was like, this is you're to my mind, you're you're this uh, uh, legend in graphic design and and uh, books on design. So that that's how it kind of came came together. And then we started writing that summer. That summer, yeah. That yeah, was we crazy. Spent a year, a year writing and putting it together. You're so prolific. You're a curator, you teach at the Maryland Institute of Contemporary Art running the graphic design program, and it seems like you're always writing multiple books at the same time. How do you do that? Well, there's, there, there's a lot of things. Um, one is uh, I'm a designer, <laughs> and I'm a graphic designer, and all forms of publishing require graphic design. Mm -hmm. So if you're a writer, and you know how to do graphic design, you have the ability to completely transform the editorial process. So let me tell you, a, a traditional publishing, an author creates a manuscript, and that manuscript has to be complete. It's often in a single Word document. It goes mm -hmm. from page one to page 300. And when the author feels happy with this document, they give it to an editor. 
and they have one or two chances to fix it, right? To respond mm-hmm. to that editor. And then a book designer turns it into pages. Mm-hmm. And the author maybe has one chance to respond to those pages. Our book, as you will remember, we designed it as we were going. Yeah, that was There was no was manuscript. Crazy. Did it seem crazy to you? It, it is a wild process, but it is so much more empowering and efficient because you're actually finishing the work as you go instead of waiting to do all that at the end. It, it was it was a real magical process because I thought, yeah, we just have to write the whole thing, then give it to a publisher and they'll format it. But then you were you you actually write in this software program from Adobe called InDesign. And so we were we would write stuff and then it was like a day later it would magically appear laid out like as it would in the book. And I was like, this is magic. And, and I, I thought well, that was just... It's not magic, it's design. And people that believe in design, as you and I do, believe in an iterative process of prototyping. So for a year, we were prototyping our book. Mm. And editors, traditional editors, do not like that. <laughs> they want to get the manuscript and then they make the prototype with some graphic designer. But we did the prototyping and we changed the book as we went to make it better, to make it match our vision. And that's design. That's the design process. Yeah, it was, it was one of the most iterative, creative things I've ever done in my life. And it's and it was amazing how when we finished, there weren't that many, you know, no publisher or editor came in and changed things. It was pretty much 99% done. And it stayed in its form that, that we created over the year. I, I love your writing style. How would you describe it to people who haven't read your books? I, I like to write in a way that is understandable to people. And so I try not to be too creative. <laughs> <laughs> I've taken some creative writing classes. And then, you know, everybody's so concerned with like beautiful sentences and poetic mm-hmm. references and, and I'll do this and then I'll come home and like delete all of that. Mm-hmm. Like, I just want the writing to be clear, like clean water. And so I'm always thinking, what's a reader going to get from this? How are they going to understand it? Do they know these references? I think of like a Chinese student. I think of um, my sister-in-law. I think of a doctor. I think mm-hmm. of what do people bring and, and what does the writing need to do to communicate to as many people as possible? Yeah. And I had to really get in your brain space to think about how when we were writing the book, because it was a, I had a lot of anxiety about it because I, like, I love the way that you write. It's so clear, concise, succinct. And it has not that much fluff to it. And so in your design, a storytelling book, at the end of the book, it's called um, The Aftermath. And there's a clinic on there that you call it Improving Your Writing and Five Ways to Strengthen Your Writing. And some of them are be concrete, not abstract, avoid the passive voice. So I was actually using that as my guide to writing our book. So it was a very meta thing. I'm like, I'm reading one of Ellen Lupton's 
books uh, and that's teaching me how to write. I'm writing with you. So, but it was super, super helpful in designing the storytelling. It's only two pages, but you lay out some nice principles of how to make writing concrete and not abstract. So that was really, really helpful. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it was why, fun to do together. Yeah. Why were you interested in writing this book for healthcare people? Cause that's not your normal audience. I am really interested in sharing the power of design beyond the profession. And I've been committed to this for many years. I did a book in 2008 called DIY Design It Yourself that mm -hmm. was very successful, kind of for young people and entrepreneurs to get involved in design. So I'm, I'm really committed to the idea that everybody can be a designer and that everybody can use the tools and the thought process of designing and prototyping and, you know, looking at every situation as something that could be improved, right? That's mm -hmm. what designers do. And the idea that healthcare is such a, an important area of the economy, of mm -hmm. human life, a site of inequity and all kinds of social problems that converge there and foolishness as we're seeing mm -hmm. today at the highest levels of government. So, wow, if, if design could be of interest to doctors and nurses and pharmacists and insurance adjusters, <laughs> all the people involved in healthcare, wouldn't that be fantastic? So meeting you is like magic because that's you and that's your audience and your community. Yeah. I just help give it a voice, you know, give it some, some shape. You said once in an interview, you said, we don't notice design until it breaks. And when I started getting into design and looking at healthcare from the spaces, the products, the services, I go, I'm thinking, this crap is broken. <laughs> and there's so many, everything from the way we design emergency rooms to the way our user interfaces are for our electronic health records, the way that we communicate with fax machines. Why do you think the design of healthcare is so bad? Well, I mean, it's such a massive system and it is very hard to make change in healthcare. There's so many regulations and so many people involved and so many overlapping and conflicting systems. So it is tough, right? It is tough to make change. And that's what's been so interesting during the pandemic is that I think there is more license for doctors and caregivers to make change on the fly because mm -hmm. it just has to be done. There has to be innovation. There is no playbook. The, the rules don't apply anymore. You know, I just saw this other book that, that you wrote, which was, was you wrote it with your sister. It was like an expert on Shakespeare in California, right? She's like, hardcore uh, academic and you talk about um what, what's the name of that book again? that's called design your life <laughs> yes the pleasures and perils of everyday things and in that book you talk about everyday design like what what is everyday design oh my gosh well think about all the design that surrounds us things like uh you know field lettuce <laughs> Right, like a bag of lettuce. 
Uh, it's all washed. Like the lettuce, the lettuce I buy and like the triple wash that I buy at Whole Foods. Yes, and and like often they put in some hard lettuce in there, like the I call it the pubic hair lettuce, you know, and it's real curly and bitter. Uh-huh. <laughs> and no one wants to eat that, you know. <laughs> yeah. But it has a function in the bag of keeping the lettuce aerated, right? So it doesn't uh-huh. all stick together. Um, I find that interesting. Or or baby carrots, you know. (laughs) They're Uh not actually babies. The way those are made is they're machined from big, giant grandma carrots. And they're made into these little pellet-shaped, you know, bite-sized carrot pieces. And people like that because they're already peeled and they're kind of industrial. (laughs) And we call them baby carrots, but... There's nothing baby about them, you know. They're very, they're kind I of a processed no, I had food. No idea. Yeah. I, I've never even thought about that. <laughs> well, some things are maybe better not to think about. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, how do you, where do you get all this knowledge from? You because you write on so many different topics. How do you research all all, all this? You just you Google everything or you have a, I do a read books of... also, Bon, but I do a lot of Google and I read a lot of books <laughs> on my phone, which is really helpful. I've seen you do that. You know, the knowledge is all there. It's but but what you and I can do is put the knowledge together in new ways for people that is accessible and fun and relevant and juxtaposes things that weren't put together before. And that's, you know, that's a lot of what I do is, is um, just finding fun and accessible ways to present knowledge to people that are interested in it, but don't need a PhD in, in baby carrots. You know, they just need a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> what are your suggestions for people who aren't designers, who maybe you, you would say that they can design and apply design into their uh, every, everyday lives. How can someone listening do that? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have so many tools now that are useful to both a professional and to a beginner or you know someone using design on the side. Let's say it's mm-hmm. a doctor, okay? So yeah. someone like me, someone yeah. like you. <laughs> and so think about something like uh, making a website. Mm-hmm. about your practice and your your research and your your you know all the things you have to offer the world that may be outside of serving patients right yep. a, a bigger part of your life and so many people go this is overwhelming how do i make a website and my view is that any big job like that is really just a lot of little jobs mm-hmm. and you just have to chip away at it over time and stay at it So, you know, we wrote a book in a year by getting up every day and doing some of it. And then a year later, we had a book. Yeah. You don't do it it in one week. It was so fast. That is very fast for a book, (laughs) but it does require returning to it and staying on it, you know, and Mm -hmm. having a partner helps because we we kept each other honest, right? Like pushed each other. Yeah. So, a website, so maybe your first job is to go look at some of the different platforms that you might use, right? Like Wix or Squarespace. Mm -hmm. And that's a little job looking at that. And then you choose one and you look at the different templates and that's a little job. You know, you, mm-hmm. you explore what you like. 
Um, you gather your assets. You know what's going to be on your website. What the articles you publish, the research, um, posters from conferences, links to your TED talks, <laughs> whatever your stuff is, right? Your intellectual mm -hmm. product. And you gather that, right? And that's a job. And then you start building the website, and suddenly you find you have done it, and you have a tool, and now you maintain it. You add to it. You hmm. keep it alive. You keep it fresh. I can't say I do the same for my website. <laughs> I'm much more interested in just doing more books and more projects, but it's on my, my August list. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I found just having more of this like designer's mindset reduces some of these barriers that might prevent us from going outside of our own like domain expertise or, or specialty, for, for example. And it lowers that kind of bar to making, I think, and just building something and, and seeing if it works and building on that. Prototyping. Yeah. You know, that it's not your last shot at something. That's why I find giving talks is really helpful because you know you're going to give the talk again. Mm -hmm. And if you think each time you try it and see how people respond, see how it feels, see how it looks, then you improve it the next time. How are you able to be so productive in so many different areas? Well, I guess I'm disciplined. Um, but I really enjoy it. Like to me, work is fun. I don't really do fun things. That's why I love the lockdown because I don't have to go to parties. <laughs> I don't have to go to the movies. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's just very. You and me are the same. I'm kind of like that too. I love the lockdown where I don't have to. I could do more work. Actually, yeah, there's a lot of pressure it. lifted to like, you know, socialize. Um, but, you know, for me, getting up early is really important. Mm -hmm. You know, so I get up very early and walk my early, little dog. How early do you get up? Well, in the summer, I've been getting up at 530, which is later. But during the year, I get up at 5. Whoa. Yeah. It is early. Pretty early. And then I go to bed oh. early. Okay. And so it's real farm lady schedule, <laughs> you know. Because people who stay up really late um, are often watching TV. Yeah. You know, so if you're a night owl and you, and I know you have to work all night as an ED doctor, but for people that really that's their most productive time, that's great as long as then they get some sleep during the day. But the world is set up for morning people. I'm, I'm the better. same. I work my clinical shifts at night, but I'm a total morning morning person. I would that's my most productive time. I have a cup of coffee. And then I write or work on projects. And I feel every hour after that is downhill. I can't work at night, actually. Outside of my clinical job, I can't do other projects at night because I, I just end up falling asleep. Yeah, and that's your, you should fall asleep, you know. Mm -hmm. No one gets up at five in the morning to eat a pizza. You know, people get up <laughs> to face the day to start, right? You might work out. Um, I take my dogs for a walk because they need it. No matter mm. what the weather is, the dogs have to go out. Uh -huh. you know? And then I work. And that few hours before the rest of the world is bugging you, you can write a book, mm. you know, because you have this time that is set aside. And I, I love your comment about you loving, loving your job and like it's 
I don't know that I love my job. <laughs> I love working. I you love, love working. I love, love producing. Working. Yeah. And the jobs that I have have been very um, helpful for creating a context for that. You know, Would you say that the work that you're doing, it's, it's all like a creative act? Hell no. I think 90% <laughs> of what either of us do is email. Yeah. Right. And that's not creative, but it has yeah. to be done. Just like you have to clean your house and you have to chop the vegetables and you have to do your laundry mm -hmm. and you have to pay your taxes. And yeah, it may not all be creative, but you, you have to do it, you know. And then the really creative parts are super fun and exciting, but it's not all creative. So a lot of people don't have opportunity to create in, in their jobs at all or maybe access that type of their brain and for, for me i was like that for most of my career and what is your advice for people of how to put creativity into their daily lives when, when they have these busy jobs and when we're responding to emails all the time and have to be parents and do the mundane things in life well, one thing that I do is I, I recognize that you can be creative in short periods of time. Mm. And some of us, uh, we tell ourselves that we can't create anything unless we have the whole weekend. Yeah. Or if we take a sabbatical or we, you know, have like a whole a day off, like Fridays off. And that's not realistic for a lot of people. So if you can look at 20 minutes or half an hour as a time where you can be creative. You chip away at a project that way. If you love to draw and paint, like you can really do a beautiful drawing in 20 minutes. If you love to paint, you can keep working on the painting, <laughs> you know, add to it over time. Th that's how we can find creativity in our lives. I, uh, I, I love that you could create in short periods of time that and I, and I think that was something I was, I was thinking about too. Like, I just don't have time to do, do anything outside of my job. I don't have time to create anything or engage in these outside projects. But, you know, the, the year that we wrote the book was one of the busiest years of my life. And you were so great, great about it, just keeping me on track of that we would have these small tasks and you know, just write a chapter, even for sort of like writing a hundred words that day, or if I can only commit to 30 minutes after a night shift in the emergency room, I was still able to do that. And just carving out like these small chunks of time that may not seem significant, but if you do that over a long period of time, you could, you could, you could, you could do something big, like write a book. Exactly. And I think if everybody had that point of view, it makes it less scary. Yeah. You know, that you can either do smaller creative things like write a poem instead of a novel, mm -hmm. or you write that novel, but you do it in chunks over time. I have a question about your, your, your backgrounds. So I know you went to uh, Cooper Union for, for college. That's where it seemed like you were first introduced to design were you always creative or that's something that you had to teach yourself or were you naturally inclined to to have that sort of mindset 
Yeah, when I was in high school, I was an artist and I did painting and did some posters, but we didn't call it design. You know, we called it commercial art. This is uh -huh. way back in the last century. It was so different then. You know, there was no computers, mm. just stone tools. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I really discovered design in college at, at Cooper Union. And for me, what was revolutionary was the idea of writing and typography coming together. So that ability to write and publish in a seamless um, process, this prototyping of text, that changed my life. And that's, that's what I do every day, some version of that. But before that wasn't common for designers to write. No, it was really just starting. Uh, there was very little critical writing about design in the 80s. There were really just a few people involved in it, partly because publishing was so much more limited. You know, mm -hmm. there was a few magazines and you could write for those magazines, but it was very narrow. And that all changed with the internet and it's become much more accessible and lots, lots more people involved, which is really exciting. Mm -hmm. And like, why does that happen? Like, why, why are some people listed as, you know, you're creative, I'm not creative, and, and what are the repercussions of that? And how do we change that? I think it's another form of bias in our society, you know, limiting people, um, telling people that they can only think in one way. And I think it stems partly from contempt for creativity. That creativity is seen as soft and not essential and not worth a lot of money, you know, not part of the bottom line. And so not only do we de devalue people by telling them that they can't be creative, mm -hmm. but, but that process is part of saying, you know, this side of you, like the STEM part is what you should be developing and that's what society needs and that's what success is. And we need to value the whole person and, and value creativity as mm. part of that. I never thought of that way, a bias towards uh, cre creativity. And I, and I definitely see that in medicine where we value science and we, we value math and engineering, but we, we don't value cr creativity. And, you know, less than 5% of people who enter into medical school or humanities major. I was a humanities major. I studied like Greek and Latin and I'm like a weirdo for doing that. But I thought that was really helpful for me to have that discipline of thinking about articulating in, in both speech and writing my ideas because so much of medicine is communication to the public. And we're seeing, <laughs> we're seeing during this pandemic, how, science is not being communicated to the general public and there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation um, out there. So I think there's just a huge need for more of us evaluating creativity in fields that are traditionally thought of maybe as not creative. How do we change that? Well, I think education is the key. So you're running a lab where medical students are invited to come into a space with Legos and pipe cleaners uh, and 3D printers yeah. where they can be creative. Yeah. And a lot of it's just, if you tell people that this isn't one of the things you do, 
well, how are they to know otherwise? Yeah. So making that invitation is really important. Yeah. And, you know, so, yeah, one of the critiques is like, it's like more soft, I, I, I get. And because I think there's this pressure to show that there's a immediate effect of this type of maybe thinking and exercise while it seems more like artists or designers or cre creatives are given a little bit more f leeway, I, I would say. Is, is that accurate to say? Yeah, but we have to fight for the leeway, mm. you know, because we have to find the time just like anybody else, mm. you know. It's not like being an artist is some incredible playground. Mm. It's like economically difficult yeah. and... Um, there's a lot of resistance in society against artists, you know, mm. bias against what we do. So it's all a fight, you know. Mm. Fighting for creativity. I, I love it. Now is the time that I check in with Rob Pugliese. He is the producer of Design Lab. I love chatting with Rob after our interviews because Rob helps me to identify what that design takeaway is. What we're going to try to help you do each week is learn something from our interview and apply it to your own life. Hey, Rob, what did you take away from our conversation? Oh, man, Ellen had some really awesome suggestions on how to incorporate creativity into your life. Um, I got to say, I'm one of those people who does stay up all night long, just kind of burning brain cells watching TV. I totally thought of you when Ellen was saying that most people, when they're working at night, they just end up watching Netflix. I couldn't get this image out of my head of you in your pajamas at one o'clock in the morning watching Netflix. Ugh, you know me too well. Um, <laughs> and that's a little weird, but maybe I should be using that time to be a little more creative. I think there's this myth that you need a huge expanse of time, like an entire weekend off to work on a creative project when really you can insert creativity into your everyday life in like 15, 20 minute chunks. Well, you make it sound easy when you put it like that. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Design Lab. Make sure you subscribe and rate our podcast on whatever platform you use to listen. I'm your host, Bon Koo, and this episode was produced by Rob Plubisi. Music in this episode was by the amazing Emmanuel Houston. See you next week.